Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. As Jesus began his preaching and teaching ministry, he doesn't do so in the big town of Jerusalem. He goes into small towns in the region of Galilee. He doesn't begin preaching with large crowds, but with small crowds, not in stadiums, but in synagogues, in and around the region that he would call home. And what we know about Luke in his writing is that Luke was not one of the original disciples. It's best believed that Luke was funded, his mission was funded to go and find all the eyewitnesses that he could about all the stories related to how Jesus interacted. And Luke was commissioned then to write the gospel based on eyewitness account of those who actually heard and saw Jesus. And so, we are at Luke chapter 14, and here's what we read at verse 14, Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. So, where was He? What happens right before Luke 4.14 is he has been in the wilderness being tempted by the devil for 40 days. And Luke says, says to us, Jesus returned then to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We don't know how long it's been since He left the wilderness and is now back in Galilee preaching and teaching. But what we do know is that as He's preaching and teaching, He's doing it as a Spirit-filled preacher. You see, God becomes a man. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and He has this itinerant traveling preaching ministry throughout the region of Galilee. He's preaching in small towns and in synagogues, places where God's people would gather, much like what we're doing today. And many of the same things would happen. There would be scripture reading and prayer and some singing. And if someone were qualified and present, there'd be preaching. And I know what you're thinking right now. Is that guy really qualified? I'm not even sure if he's present. And there'd be small towns And the synagogues would be small. They would only be big enough to house a few dozen people. You see, to even have a synagogue in your town required at least 10 adult males. Not every town even had 10 adult males to qualify for a synagogue. That's how small they were. And so at this point, Jesus is very popular. As with the Old Testament prophets, he has this period of real enthusiasm. Crowds are coming out. When he's coming to town, you better believe the synagogues are full. Some of these people have walked many miles over rough, rocky terrain just to hear this young, fiery preacher whose name is Jesus and what he has to say. They're not used to having great preachers, great Bible teachers. They're not used to having people of note and significance in their midst. And here comes this Bible preacher, Jesus. 
right now, he's got a lot of popularity. But as will happen, it happened to almost all the Old Testament prophets, there was a time where that love and affection turned to opposition and ultimately to murder. But right now, he is being praised by all, meaning they're talking about him. He is the, the buzz of, of all of the towns in that region. And it's different. He comes with a different kind of authority. Well, moving on, verse 16 gives us a little bit more information about Jesus, this Spirit-filled preacher. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. He comes to his hometown. In just a few verses, we would read that Jesus himself saying a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, Jesus will ultimately be rejected in Nazareth. But at this very moment, there's great curiosity about him. These are people who grew up with Jesus. They saw him as a little boy and then as a young man, and, and now he is officially a rabbi. What a high honor. And very unusual for someone of Jesus' background and hometown to be called a rabbi, he's from a town where education would have been very difficult to come by. But we would read earlier in Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. Think about that for a moment. All right, we know Jesus is God, and He had to grow in wisdom and stature. I mean, shouldn't it be just, hey, God's here, boom? That says something very interesting. Jesus had to study and learn in order to grow. You see, what it means is that God humbled Himself, identifying with us, and He had to learn as we have to learn. He devoted Himself to study Scripture as we have to devote ourselves to study Scripture. And what we find is He's actually become officially declared a rabbi. That means He's educated. Now, someone might say, well, I don't need to learn and study. I'll just follow the Holy Spirit. Well, look, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, grew in wisdom and stature and favor, which means He had to study which means he qualified to officially be declared a rabbi, a teacher of Scripture, a theologian. If you want to be like Jesus, you need to learn how to study and grow in wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus comes to his hometown, to Nazareth. Again, think small town. His parents are typical of those who live in the town of Nazareth. You'll remember that his adoptive father was a carpenter, his mom young, poor, and simple. You see, important people don't come to Nazareth, and certainly important people don't come from Nazareth. Later on, the statement will be made as Jesus' fame grows throughout the region, somebody will ask, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Meaning, no one of substance, no one of note, no one of significance has ever come from this town. 
And so now Jesus is coming back home. He's one of their own. Not only that, he's been preaching and teaching in the region, and many of these poor and illiterate have now come to understand with competency the capacity that Jesus has to teach, the authority by which he teaches. And Jesus shows up to read, it says, as was his custom on the Sabbath day. For the Jews, that's Saturday, given the order of creation by God. But once Jesus' resurrection occurred on a Sunday, then Christians changed the worship to Sundays to reflect this new era, the new reality of life. Jesus came to the synagogue, so think of Him essentially going to the equivalent of an old covenant church. Jesus is going to church as was His custom, it says. That means Jesus regularly attended corporate worship with God's people. Jesus went to church all the time as a little boy and a young man in his teens, in his 20s, and you'll find him there on the Sabbath being obedient to Scripture, showing up with God's people. Sometimes we think church isn't useful. It was for Jesus. And Jesus participated in the life of a worshiping community. It was his regular custom. What does that say about us? You and I need to be in church. You and I need to be under the teaching of God's Word. You and I need to be meeting with God's people. That was Jesus' custom. That was His habit. That was His lifestyle. That was His routine. And it says He stood to read. So it was a little bit different in the way that they would organize in their synagogues. The person who was the preacher of the day would stand to read the Scripture, and then they would sit to preach the sermon. So Jesus stands to read the Scripture. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In that congregation, Jesus stands up as the one in authority, the Bible teacher, the preacher, and the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him. Now, until, let me give you a little history lesson, until Johannes Gutenberg in the 15th century, invented the printing press. Everything before then was hand-copied on scrolls, long parchments. Think of something rolled up really big. Jesus is handed a scroll, and He begins to read from Isaiah, and He picks particularly the place where He wants to read. What that indicates is that Jesus knew the Bible very well. What's more, Bible chapters weren't added until the 1200s. Bible verses, not until the 1500s. So, to find the place where you want to read from, Jesus had to roll out the scroll of Isaiah, know exactly where He was going. And He reads a portion a line really from Isaiah 58 and a couple verses from Isaiah 61. 
He knows exactly where to go on that scroll because he has studied the Scriptures. Now, can you imagine the the kind of devotion you would have to have in order for that to happen? Because chances were you may have a synagogue in your hometown. They would be the keepers of the scrolls. There would be a version of what they knew as their Bible, the Old Testament for us. And they'd be there at the synagogue and these long scrolls, and you'd have to roll them out. If that was the case, how many of you, how many of us, including myself, would take the time to do that? You would have to get up, walk to the synagogue, get a copy, unroll the scroll, no chapters, no verses, no study Bible, no online resources, no commentaries. And Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and you can infer from that, as He often did, And he reads it. And here what we see is a little bit from Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, the context in the larger framework of Isaiah 40 to 66 is about the suffering servant. That God the Father would send God the Son into human history as a servant who suffers. The one who would be betrayed and suffer and die in our place for our sins and then rise three days later. You want a great summary of Jesus' life and death, read Isaiah 52 and 53. It falls right in that, that framework that I'm talking about. So clearly do those two chapters, 52 and 53, describe Jesus' life and death that often the book of Isaiah is referred to as the fifth gospel because it's so clearly 700 years in advance teaches and prophesies about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. And then in that portion from Isaiah 61, the context is on the year of Jubilee, or what our text calls the year of the Lord's favor. The year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor happened every 50th year. And the pattern was something that God had established where slaves would be set free, debts would be canceled, land that had been lost due to debt or tragedy would be returned to its owners. That year, that every 50th year, everyone got a fresh, clean start. Wouldn't that be amazing? But today I'm afraid that People are so abusive and evil that that jubilee year would come and we'd rack up so much great debt before it and we would not find it to be grace-filled. We'd be abusing that grace. That's not the intent. The intent was that those who suffered and were poor and were struggling and were enslaved got a fresh, clean start. That's God's grace being given to them and they would get to start over in life. And so the context is around this year of Jubilee so that the ideas that Jesus will share are what He is going to give as the year the Lord's favor is now upon us. We don't have to do this every 50th year thing. Jesus inaugurated the Jubilee. Let me remind you again what He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The first thing that we see is Jesus relating to the poor. Luke highlights the ministry of Jesus to poor. 
Jesus himself was poor. And so what he's talking about here is in this world, if you are poor, you are at a distinct disadvantage. And what he's offering is the same grace, salvation, love of God, the same forgiveness of sins, the same seat in heaven, whether you're rich or poor. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not inferring from this that he doesn't like rich people. Really, when it comes to money, the Bible talks about four types of people, two kinds of rich, two kinds of poor. First, there are the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich. The unrighteous rich get their money by stealing, cheating, hoarding, which means they don't give, they don't tithe, they're not generous. That's the unrighteous rich. The righteous rich, on the other hand, work hard and smart, and by God's grace, they've been given a lot, and they are good stewards of it. They're generous, they tithe, they help those in need. Now, when it comes to the poor, again, there are two categories, the unrighteous and the righteous poor. The unrighteous poor are those that are spoken of in Proverbs with words that I wouldn't care to be labeled a sluggard, lazy. They don't work. They won't stop drinking. They're fools who chase fantasies, get rich, quick schemes. They come to ruin. That's the unrighteous poor. But here in Luke 4.18, Jesus is speaking of that fourth category. That is those who are righteous poor. They're not poor because they've done some necessary, you know, evil or, or some sin. They're hardworking. Maybe they've been honest. They're just simple, like Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, who was a poor carpenter. And the question is, for those who are righteous and poor, what does God have for them? Well, complete equality in the sight of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Rich and poor attend church together. There's no preferential seating for the rich and judgmental seating for the poor. There isn't preference or there shouldn't be preference within the Christian church for those who are rich. Jesus' brother James has a lot to say about that in his New Testament letter. Neither should there be mistreatment or neglect of those who are poor. And so what this means is that the righteous rich... Give generously so that ministry is done to those who are righteous poor. You see, Christianity is not built upon an economic model where you get what you pay for. Christianity is built on the fact that Jesus is your God and He gives grace thoroughly, completely, equally to everyone. And it's amazing in our day we live in a world where you are where you live, you are what you drive, you are what you wear. And Jesus says, I have good news for everyone. I'm here to atone for your sins. I'm here to love you and be your God. You don't have riches? Well, now God has given himself to you, and that's the greatest gift of all. Next, he speaks of 
freedom from, for prisoners. Now, this does not mean let all criminals go. This has to do with those who are spiritually imprisoned. For some of you, drugs are your prison. Alcohol is a prison. Other people's opinion is a prison. For some of you, it is food, drink, gambling, entertainment, foolishness, high-risk behavior, compulsive spending. Those are what we choose, and they rule over us. They control our lives, and here's why that's important to hear, because it's not supposed to be that way. We belong to God. So if you belong to Jesus, and He's given us the Holy Spirit, we want to be about His business, because we love Him and appreciate Him, and we're grateful for His work in our life to set us as captives free. Some of us are still fighting through our captivity. But because of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, captives can be set free. Then he goes to talk about those who are blind. Jesus actually did give sight, physical sight, to those who are blind. Can you imagine that? That Jesus touches someone and they're able to see. John the Baptist, sometimes later, he even questions, Jesus, are you the one? But he's in prison, John is. So he sends some of his own disciples to Jesus with a question, are you the Christ? Jesus' response, he says, go tell John. One of the first things, the blind are receiving their sight. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. We would know that God has come because blind eyes were open. And yes, Jesus still heals physically, but He heals spiritually as well. People who are blind to the things of God, people who don't see the goodness of God in Christ, God can open those blind eyes. For you, how many of you have had that experience yourself? You didn't understand who Jesus was. You didn't know that He was God become a man. You didn't know that He lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death you should have died, and He gave you the gift that you could not earn. You're just blind. You may have heard about Jesus. You knew something about Him, or at least your parents took you to church, but Jesus wasn't in your gaze. He wasn't central and essential. Your eyes weren't fixed on Him. You were blind to Him. And maybe it was self-selected blindness, meaning the Bible was taught, the church was present in your life, God's people were available. You just closed your eyes. You chose blindness. And God opens. Jesus opens blind eyes to understand the Scriptures and to know and to love and to belong to Him. He goes on to say, Jesus does, that He will come to set the oppressed free. That word oppressed in the Greek literally means bruised or crushed. It's those who are bruised or crushed by the awareness of sin in their lives. And we would think, you know, I am not worthy to have Jesus Christ come into my life. 
I'm not worthy. And you're right. None of us are. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ offering you and me His grace. As I've stated many times before, not because you're good, but because He's good. His love toward you is immense and immeasurable. And whatever you are weighed down by, whatever guilt or shame from the past or the present, doesn't define you in the eyes of Jesus Christ. You may wonder, how can you be so sure, Paul? You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I don't have to. Because Jesus already knows. And He loves you as you are, not as you should be. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Right? Because he stood up to read. Now he's sitting down. They know he's going to preach. And he began by saying to them, Today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There's this expectation, this anticipation by those people who are poor. How is God going to change our lives by those who are captives, how are we going to be set free? By those who are blind, how will we see? By those who are oppressed, how will we be vindicated? And Jesus rolls up the scroll of Isaiah and he says, Today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture. From the last of the Old Testament till the time of Jesus, no prophet had spoken for 400 years. The rabbis are debating, has God abandoned us? Has the Holy Spirit left us? Is God no longer pleased with us? No prophet had preached. No book of the Bible had been written. No spirit-filled man had been on the scene. No servant of God had shown up, not to this degree, for 400 years. And Jesus says, today the Spirit of the Lord is on me. I am the Christ. All of this is fulfilled in me. I'm your riches. I'm your freedom. I'm your sight. I'm your liberation. That's me. It's all about Jesus. You're looking at Jesus' sermon up there. I know what you're thinking. His sermon was one line, Paul. Did you see that? It's just one line. His first sermon, recorded in the Gospel of Luke, is one line long. But what an incredible line that is. And the first word of his first sermon just sticks out to me today. Isn't that amazing? It's not that you give your sins to Jesus someday. You give Jesus your sins today. It's not that you commit yourself to regularly gathering with God's people at church someday. You commit to that today. You don't commit yourself to reading about Jesus in the Scriptures someday. You do that today. You don't determine that at some point in your future, you will overcome your addiction and your sin and your pride and your imprisonment and your identity issues related to your sins. That day is today. 
You don't confess the deep, dark secrets of your heart and your mind and your life someday. That day is today. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.